One question many young authors ask is if they should get a degree in creative writing at the university or perhaps some other kind of English degree. So is getting a degree a good investment? And not, what is the best path to publishing success as a young writer? We'll find out in this episode of Novel Marketing, the longest running book marketing podcast in the world. I'm Thomas Umstadt Jr., and this is the show for writers who want to build their platform, sell more books, and make a difference with writing worth talking about. And we have a very special guest with us today to help answer or perhaps help debate this question. He's the best-selling author of Do Hard Things and the co-founder of the Young Writers Workshop and the Author Conservatory. And he's helped hundreds of young writers publish their work. Brett Harris, welcome to the Novel Marketing Podcast. Thomas, it is such an honor to be here. Thank you. So let me just kick it to you right away. Do writers need to have a degree in fine arts or creative writing or literature in order to pursue their career as an author? The answer to that question is no, they don't need one. But I, I actually think that the question of do you need one can be a, a distraction. Like it, It's almost like, well, yeah, no, you don't need one. So that means it's not good. But then other people say, well, hey, it's helpful. I got a degree. I thought it was helpful in this way. I thought it was helpful in that way. I thought I learned this. I was able to read all this great literature. I got some great feedback from my peers and, and from a professor. And so it quickly becomes a debate about, is it helpful? And, and I like to just say, it's absolutely helpful. There's absolutely things that can be very helpful about going to college for writing. I think the better question is, are college writing programs coming anywhere close to adequately preparing someone for a career as a novelist? And that, I think, is the question we need to be asking. Yeah, the way I like to address questions like this is through a mindset of comparative advantage, which is very much a business school way or an economics way of looking at it. What's the next best alternative? Because this is really important when you're trying to decide what to do and you have limited time and limited money, right? So is standing by the street corner helpful in selling your book, right? Probably, right? You stand by the street corner with a cardboard sign, you probably sell your book. But is it the best use of your time and money? It's like, well, it's probably not going to waste very much money. So cardboard signs are cheap, but it will be probably a waste of time. You get a better return doing something else. And so with a writing degree, the question isn't really, does it teach you something? Because you will learn grammar and you will read a lot of books. But what is your next best alternative? And with the creative writing degree, one of the things I would say is you can read those books on your own. <laughs> you can host your own write group with other professional writers and discuss those books. And you don't have to pay $20,000 a semester for that. It's not like this is some magical secrets that you're learning from a professor. Or it's really esoteric and you need that help like in a science degree or a technology degree. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And that is where I think the question has to become, yeah, what is the alternative? And is there an alternative? I think that's where a lot of people get stuck because it feels like there's not a good alternative for a few reasons. I mean, one is just well, don't I still need to go to college, period, to earn that degree and get that piece of paper so I have a backup plan if writing doesn't work out? And so you have people saying, well, yeah, maybe it's not the best way to pursue my writing dreams, to be prepared anywhere close to adequately for a writing career. But don't I still need it anyway? And I might as well go to college for something I enjoy, like writing. And so this is, I think even a second question 
that has to be discussed, which is, well, don't we still need college anyway as a writer just to have that backup plan? There's a joke. This guy calls a plumber to come and fix his toilet. And the plumber works for 30 minutes and gives him a, a invoice for $250. He's like, $250? You're only here for 30 minutes. That's that's $500 an hour. I'm a lawyer. I don't even charge that. And the plumber's like, yeah, I used to be a lawyer too. <laughs> and it, it illustrates the fact that if, you, if your goal is to make money, college degrees aren't as valuable as they used to be because of supply and demand. The demand for college degrees has gone up a little bit, but the supply of college-educated workers has gone up you know, it used to be 2 to 3% of the population. That was 4 or 5% of the population 50 years ago. Now it's like 30% of the population has some amount of college. And it no longer gives you this kind of magical, guaranteed good job. While at the same time, it's gone up in price. So while it's going down in its value, it's going up in its price. When my grandmother went to college, a semester of the University of Texas was $25. For the whole semester. When my dad went to college, a semester of University of Texas was like $400 or $500. It was less than 1000 for sure. I was, by the time I went to school, and this was over a decade ago, I was spending $300 just for one textbook. That wasn't even for one class, much less one semester. And the degree was far less valuable in the sense of making me hireable than it was for my dad when back then a degree was a guaranteed job. I graduated in 2008 and nobody was looking to hire anybody at that time. <laughs> yeah. And this is a topic, obviously, I'm passionate about, and I like to dive into the research. I like to stay up on the latest news. And it's interesting to see the movement towards questioning the college degree as a baseline requirement for hiring. And that's why we see companies like Google, Ernst & Young, Penguin Random House, Costco, Whole Foods, Hilton, Apple, Starbucks, Nordstrom, Home Depot, IBM. I mean, just on and on who are waiving any sort of degree requirement for employment, and not just at entry-level jobs, but even for mid-level jobs and opportunities for advancement. And so I think we're moving into a, a era where we're going to start to ask the question, well, what is more important than that piece of paper? And I think the answer for a lot of employers, and I think for a lot of publishers, is actual skill, marketable skills, the actual ability to do the work, and experience, which again, unfortunately, in my having worked with hundreds of young writers and seen many of them go to school and hearing dozens and dozens of direct reports back, college is not delivering for writers. And so I think we have to question the whole assumption. I, you mentioned the history, you know, back when, back after World War II with the GI Bill and all of these veterans being sent off to college, being paid for by the government, it led to this huge economic boom for our country. We, but we also won the war and, and that kind of helped. And then we have this afterglow where our grandparents and our parents all saw college and experienced college as this golden ticket into the middle class or into the upper middle class, into a stable career and a good job. And that assumption still colors the advice that's being given to a lot of young people today, when in reality, those outcomes are no longer predictable or even no longer the majority outcome for someone who's investing all that time and way more money, like you said. 
As an employer, I can confirm this. I've, I don't even know how many people I've hired, and I definitely don't know how many people I've interviewed. <laughs> I've helped run several different companies, and I've hired a lot of people, and I've interviewed a lot of college graduates, and I've often been stunned at how little useful information college graduates have in their heads, <laughs> especially from any of the liberal arts degrees or arts degrees. With one exception, Texas State University has a really good graphic design program. <laughs> we hired a bunch of their top students from Texas State University's graphic design program. So, so I'm going to carve them out because they were legitimately good. But with that exception, I would interview these young people and they didn't know anything, like nothing useful. They'd, and now they had all of this debt and they were no more appealing to me as an employer than somebody without a degree. In fact, the two best technical people that I worked with, because we would hire both design, graphic design, marketing type people, and we would also hire coders, developers, and engineers. The two best software developers I worked with, neither of them went to college. One started going to college and got frustrated that it was moving too slow for him, and he just dropped out and spent that time writing code and getting a job, which was far better preparation for him. And the other one I don't think ever went to college, and he was incredibly good at what he did. And then we had other people that we hired that had gone to school, and they weren't as good. And, and obviously, it's a small sample size, but it was a negative correlation. <laughs> it's like the kinds of people who went to college were actually negatively correlated with how many useful skills that they had. And it was very frustrating for me as an employer because the degree didn't signal to me anything useful. It used to say, oh, this degree signals this person is smart. They're one of those top 1%, top 5% in intelligence. But that's no longer the case. It doesn't signal that because a lot of the grades are now given out on a group basis. So you don't actually have to be very smart to cruise by on group projects and get passing grades. It's a lot easier to get an A now than how I hear it was back in the day when all of the assignments were individual assignments and you had to pull your own weight if you wanted to get good grades. Mm, yeah. The funny thing, Thomas, I realize is we've kind of skipped right over the first question of, is college for writing adequate to prepare you for a career? We've skipped over that as if it's just a clear cut answer. And I think the interesting thing is when you ask, is it helpful? You get all sorts of perspectives. Some people who think it's not helpful at all. Some th people who think it's counterproductive. Some people who think it's it was helpful. Some people who think it was super helpful. But when we ask the question, is it adequate to prepare me for a career as a novelist? I have found almost universal agreement that it is not adequate. And that agreement is most unanimous among published authors themselves who have <laughs> those successful careers as novelists. And so that's a pretty shocking admission or reality to acknowledge when we think about the fact that there's about 100 to 120,000 students a year who are embarking on these four-year, often fairly expensive English slash creative writing degree programs, many of whom are hoping to someday be published authors. I would confirm that as well, because there's a big difference between being published and having a career as an author. And I don't know anyone who went straight from a college degree into having a career as an author. But I can think of people who've done that through various online professional training programs. I know you have one. Susan May Warren has one. And I know people who go through those programs. And after four years, they do have a career. We have our five-year plan. People are going through that. And it's better preparation, partly because it's more targeted at actually having a career. I'm sure you've heard the statistics that a person who earns a bachelor's degree 
earns on average about $17,000 more per year than someone with just a high school diploma or something to that extent. You've heard that before. I'm sure everyone has. So here is my pet peeve. I have delved into the research. I've looked at the actual studies. I've read quotes from the actual researchers and not just the journalists reporting on this. And I think it's a bunch of baloney. I think it's one of the greatest marketing ploys that has ever been pulled off and it's been pulled off by colleges. They're the ones who are reporting on this data. They're the ones who are funding it in many cases. But you actually look at what the researchers are saying and it's pretty interesting. So I have a few quotes pulled up here. I'm going to read them for everyone just because it's important to hear from the source. So this quote's from PolitiFact, and this is a quote from Peter Capelli, who's a professor of education at the University of Pennsylvania. And he says, we really do not know how much of the higher pay college grads earn is due to the fact that they are already more able, they have families with more resources, and they have other advantages that help them in the job market as compared to those who do not go to college. Then let's go to the New York Fed. This is the organization that puts out the research. This is the kind of gold standard. This is the Federal Reserve, you mean? The New York branch of the Federal Reserve? Yes, it's the newyorkfed.org is the website where I found this information. So they report, these are the people commenting on the research. If you actually dive into the actual reports, they say the wage differentials that we estimate provide only a rough guide to the economic benefits of a college degree and come with a few important caveats. Caveats that the journalists don't ever mention, the colleges don't ever mention, and parents and students and advisors rarely hear. So here's the caveats. First, as a group, those pursuing a college degree may well have aptitudes, skills, and other characteristics that make them different from those who do not go on to college. This implies that part of what we estimate as a benefit to a college degree may reflect the different abilities of those who earn a college degree and not the added value of a college education itself. So these quotes themselves, I think, are pretty damning in that the researchers themselves say, we don't actually know that college is responsible for any sort of higher earnings in any sort of direct way. It could just be another symptom of a supportive family, supportive parents, good upbringing, ambitious, hardworking, etc. It's kind of like trying to judge a football coach, a college football coach. Are you really a good coach or are you just recruiting the best players? If you're recruiting all the fastest players and your team is outrunning the other team, is that really because you coach them to be fast or because you didn't recruit slow players? And so that's why they're running faster or tackling mm. better or what have you. Right, right. Annualreviews.org, which they went and looked at all of this research on all of the studies related to college increasing your lifetime earnings. And their conclusion is that overall, the scarcity of credible evidence regarding the causal effect of college on earnings is striking. In other words, we are not finding any credible evidence that there's any sort of causal relationship. So this is one point that I like to make, especially to parents and students who've really bought into the belief that at the very least, even if it's a, a, not a good option for my writing, it's not going to help me have a career. It's not even trying to prepare me for that. Well, it's still a good idea because it's going to help me have a better life, make more money. That's, that's established fact. 
The reality is the researchers don't say that. People reviewing that research don't say that. But here's, I think, the final nail in the coffin. And this last thing I'll say, I, I like to read about this. So I, I dive into the research. But Jeffrey Salingo, who's editor-at-large for the Chronicle of Higher Education, he wrote a book called College Unbound, The Future of Higher Education and What It Means for Students. And he shared this statistic, which was unrelated to any discussion of college leading to increased earnings. But I think it's pretty damning. He says, in the last decade, the percentage of students from families at the highest income levels who got a bachelor's degree has grown to 82%, while for those at the bottom, it has fallen to just 8%. So what he's saying is, eight out of 10 students from the highest income families go and get bachelor's degrees. Nine out of 10 students from the lowest income families never get a bachelor's degree. So when we're comparing college graduates, they make all this extra money. Non-college graduates, they don't make as much money. We're comparing students from wealthy families to students from poor families. The argument is basically the same as if we just said students from wealthy homes earn more money on average over their life than students on average from poor families. And so this is just a big myth that college itself is somehow giving you a better financial future. And the myth is the fallacy of post hoc ergo propter hoc. After this, therefore, because of this, or as we like to say nowadays, correlation is not causation. And so it is true that people who go to college make more money. But that doesn't mean that it was the college that made them make more money. If you are the son of a wealthy family or daughter of a wealthy family, you have a lot of advantages from being from that wealthy family that college didn't give you, right? If you have a trust fund, if if you have the connections, right? Daddy is setting you up in his company to rise through the ranks. That is beneficial whether you go to college or not. And so thinking that college is your ticket to the middle class or your ticket to the to becoming wealthy, I think is very much oversold. And it's hard to make that case. I I agree with this research that you're sharing, because it's definitely what I have witnessed. What makes you good is being good at the thing, right? Doing part of it is your natural abilities. And part of it is your work ethic. And and another part of it is how much work you put in to hone your craft, get good at the marketing, get good at the writing. And going back to the degree, let's talk specifically about creative writing degrees. Being a career author requires more than just writing a good book, right? There's this whole path to publication, learning how to get an agent, learning how to put together a proposal, learning how to work with the publishing company, learning how to negotiate a contract, learning how to manage rights, learning how to build a platform, learning how to grow your reputation with readers, learning how to do outreach and marketing. And most of that is not taught at all in a creative writing program where you're not graduating with an understanding of the kind of fundamentals of marketing, which is one of the big things that separates successful career authors from not career authors. And it really doesn't set you up well. You can just look at the curriculum and the setup. It's not a useful curriculum if what you're wanting is to make money as an author. If what you're wanting to do is edit other people's books, I think it helps. But I know some of the top editors. So the ones who've written books on editing never went to college. (laughs) So you don't have to go to college to become a good editor. 
you do have to go to college if you want to teach English at college. So there's a little bit of Ponzi scheme advantage there. Mm. <laughs> there is some money in sticking around in the academy and continuing to teach other people as they try to fight for those limited seats at those universities. Yes. And I will say the amount of seats available is extremely limited and the amount of people qualified for those seats is increasing exponentially. And even that is not at all a viable guaranteed outcome anymore. Now, I should ask, did you go to college? Because in full confession, I did go to university myself. Yes, I did as well after publishing my books. And it was a good experience for personal growth. I made some great friends. You know, there was a lot of good that came out of it, which I would say, again, college can be helpful. It did not help me at all as a writer. It was, a, it was an enormous detour on my writing career. All of the skills that I use today as an author and now as an entrepreneur were skills I was practicing in high school before I went to, to college. And to be fair, you were a best-selling author before you went to college. Your first best-selling book you wrote while you were still in high school. Right. And, you know, it sold over 700,000 copies. And our family as a whole has four best-selling authors in it, which I think is a little rare. And... We've sold millions of books collectively, and all of those books were written before any of us had a college degree. So college was certainly not part of the strategy to be a successful author. It was pursued for other reasons. My twin brother wanted to go on to be a lawyer. He is now a lawyer, went on to Harvard Law School. I mean, if you want to do that, you got to go to school. I am not anti-college for any reason. I do discourage young writers who want a writing career from attending college because I think there's better options and I think it's really inadequate for that path. Yeah, so let's talk about those better options because you know, we're talking about comparative advantage, right? So it's not, do I go to college or do I not get an education? That's not what either of us are talking about. It's do I go to college or do I get that same education through alternate means? So what are some of the alternate ways to learn the kind of industry of publishing and writing? Yeah, well, one of the first things that I think stands out is you need to just put in the reps when it comes to writing and completing projects. And if you want to be a novelist, you need to be completing novels, not completing short stories in a creative writing class that then getting feedback from other students and from a professor who doesn't write the genres that you write or may not even be published, but if they are published, not in the genres that you want to write. So I think that's the first thing is you've got to practice the real thing, which is the novels, the book length projects. Short stories are great for craft. They're great for learning a lot of things. It's not the same as being able to write a novel. And it's certainly not the same as being able to write a novel on deadline for a publisher, which you will have to do usually after your first book, which you might have taken 12 years to write that first one. Now you've got to write the next one in eight months. Good luck with that if you haven't practiced. That's where a lot of authors run into what's called the sophomore slump. They spend their whole lives writing the first book, and then they have eight months or a year to write the second, and they just don't have the practice. So that would be the first thing is you've got to put in the time and free up the time to write your own projects and to complete full-length projects. And that's very difficult to do while in college, but very possible to do if you don't go to college and you set up a plan for yourself, especially if you have a writing community to support you, and especially if you have some sort of mentorship to guide you and some training to help you avoid common mistakes. But I would say completing full-length projects, 
honestly, from the discussions I've had with authors, it seems like somewhere in the range of four to six full-length novels before you're putting out something that's actually publishable is a pretty standard number. There's exceptions to every rule, but that's a pretty standard number. And so a lot of these writers who are just going to spend 10 years on that first novel and think, now I have a shot at a career, they're just going about it wrong. If they had spent those four years in college writing four more novels, they might actually be on track. Yeah, I mean, that's what we do in the five-year plan. In year one, you're writing a short story every month, but by the end of year one, you've written a novel. And I think in year two, you write two more novels. <laughs> in year three, you write two more novels, right? So as you're going through the plan, you're continuing to write short stories, but you're writing novels. Your program is the same. Your your program is, is what, four years long? It's a three-year program. Okay. Yeah. And, and people are writing, how many novels after they go through your program are, have they written by the end? That's going to vary from student to student, but anywhere from two to four novels, but with developmental feedback, multi-published authors, professional editors, every step of the way. They're getting feedback on their original story idea, feedback on a synopsis, feedback on an outline, then they're drafting, then they're getting feedback on a reverse outline, they're getting manuscript assessments. So there's a lot of feedback. So we're trying to really speed up that process from the four to six to maybe the two to four to really be able to get to the point where you have something that an agent or an acquisitions editor and readers are going to love. And you're teaching specifically commercial fiction, right? How to write fantasy, how to write romance, how to write thriller. You're not teaching which is what most creative writing programs teach, how to write literary fiction. That's not your emphasis. We are very much focused on commercial fiction and young people today want to write speculative sci-fi fantasy. That's the most popular genre in our program. But we also have students writing historical fiction, biblical fiction, contemporary, all over the range. Yes. And I would add to that, that spending time learning business skills and practicing business skills in order to have some experience with marketing and sales and branding and all of these things, which I know you mentioned earlier, Thomas, is also such an important part of that preparation. I think it's easy for writers to focus on how do I get good enough at writing? How do I write a book that's good enough to publish? And they are not asking the question, am I ready to publish, especially on the business side, navigating the publishing industry, actually getting my books to the readers who need to know it exists and getting them to buy it. Those skills are often neglected, which is, I think, half of the battle. You've got to fight that battle too, not just the write a good enough book. Yeah, I mean, I will say I'm very glad I got my business degree, but my business degree was very different than the other students who are getting my same business degree, partly because I started my business while I was still in school. So the last two or three semesters, I would go and sit in my professor's offices and make them give me free business consulting. <laughs> I'd ask them questions and I was asking questions as a business owner and they were an expert in their area and they and we would talk until they would give me a book recommendation and then I would go and read that book on my own. These are often professors I didn't even have classes with anymore. I'd just go in, pop in in their office, they'd read a book and then I'd come back and we would discuss the book. And I got an incredible education, but a lot of the education that I got was outside of the classroom. I kind of hacked college. I went to a small university where I had access to those professors. And I was the one student who was going to them on office hours and they were contractually obligated to answer student questions during office hours. So I got a lot of free consulting and it really did give me a really good education. And I'm glad I did. 
and it set me up well and it helped me when I eventually started publishing and started helping other authors. But a lot of what I learned in school, I could have read those books without being in a university. Right? The classes that being in university really helped with for me were the accounting classes, the finance classes, the math classes. Outside of that, you know, management, marketing, you can learn that reading books. You can spend a few hundred dollars at Barnes & Noble and get well on your way to understanding how to put together a good marketing campaign. Absolutely. And I learned everything that I know about marketing from reading books and doing the work and getting training and mentorship from people who were doing what I wanted to do. And that's ultimately my biggest recommendation for students. Find people who have done what you want to do and learn from them. If they've written books, read those books. If they have programs, join those programs and get that mentorship and personal feedback from someone who's walked a path ahead of you. That's my biggest beef I think with college is how few of the people guiding you and giving you feedback have walked down the path that you're trying to pursue. And, and therefore, how can they show you the way? It's like going to the park to find someone who loves tennis or maybe they like badminton. So they're like, well, that's close enough. <laughs> that's literary fiction to commercial <laughs> fiction. Like we both like hitting a ball over a net. So let's play together and expecting to become a professional that way. You know, you've got to find someone who has gone pro themselves or helped others go pro. And that's really my number one piece of advice for a young person who wants to pursue this as a career. You've got to be learning from people who've done it and or helped other people do it and preferably both. Yeah. My wife is National Merit Scholar. She's very smart. She got a full ride to Texas A&M where she studied communications. And she will tell you that she did not learn anything useful in that communications program. <laughs> she had to basically learn from scratch when she got her first job after college, which wasn't right away because there's not a lot of employers that were beating down the doors to hire uh, communication majors, even ones who are graduating with honors. She didn't learn anything useful. <laughs> it was all theory. It was all this kind of postmodern deconstructionism, nothing that you could actually use to benefit an employer, <laughs> to help an employer make more money. And she enjoyed her time at university. It was very fun, but it didn't actually help her advance her career in any way. And we're both very thankful that she got a full ride because it would have been terrible. She had spent thousands of dollars or God forbid, tens of thousands of dollars on an education that didn't teach her anything. There was no knowledge that she had, useful knowledge, after those four years that she didn't already have starting in that degree. And that's that's a terrible indictment. <laughs> and Texas A&M is a good school. It has a good reputation. It's a good football team. And I like Texas A&M. And yet even Texas A&M's communication program didn't teach anything useful as far as my wife was concerned. Mm. And that's an important clarification of my own story. I did go to college on a full ride scholarship that I earned because of my books. So <laughs> <laughs> if I had paid for it, that would be a very different story. And my feelings about it would be very different. And that's where I think if your reasons for going to college or as a parent, your reasons for wanting your child to go to college is the college experience, the personal growth, getting out on your own, learning to take more responsibility. Mom's not there to tell you to brush your teeth. If that's your reason, well, it can provide that. I had a great time in college. And yet that is such a luxury. <laughs> that is not a necessity. That is a luxury. And if I had had to pay what the sticker price was, or even with a more normal amount of financial aid would have been for my school, that would have very much soured my perspective on the time versus being able to go on a full ride scholarship. And so 
without any debt and with very little expense. So I think that's that's where you know if you need to do something that requires a college degree, college is important and necessary. If you want to be a writer and publish novels, it is not necessary. It is also not adequate. And there are so many things you can do to pursue this on your own if you're self-motivated and you're finding people who have a track record of helping other people do what you're trying to do. Thomas's five-year course, our author conservatory, three-year college alternative. There's more programs like this than there used to be, and they are focused on the actual skills that you need and you're learning from people who are in the industry. And I think that is ultimately the recommendation I'd leave people with. And that's the the path that we've gone down after working with so many high school writers is realizing there's not a good option. We feel good recommending or sending students to. So we're going to create our own. And that's what the author conservatory is. Yeah. And let's talk real briefly about the difference between the author conservatory and the five-year plan. Because the way we've been presenting it, it sounds like these compete and they're, they couldn't be more different. <laughs> they're both the same in that you can use them as an alternative for going to college. But the five-year plan was never really constructed to be a college alternative. It's the plan. It's basically here's the best way to maximize the first five years of your career as an author. It's targeted at adults. <laughs> we weren't considering high schoolers or teenagers when we created this. The assumption was you're already a professional, but you're wanting to start writing a book. And it's very much self-paced and there's not a lot of interactivity. It's We're not giving you feedback. We're telling you join a critique group, but we're not providing the critique group. Whereas the author conservatory, if I understand correctly, is more of that kind of classroom experience where there's more live interaction with the with the teachers. You don't have professors, you have professional authors who are actually already successful in professional commercial writing, giving the feedback. So walk us through some of those differences, because it's also a lot more expensive because it's got all that live interaction. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it. our program is intended to be like college used to be, which is it's preparing you for a career. It is the kind of thing you can pay for by working part-time it's a reasonable thing to do or you could save up for by working part time in high school. And yet it's a significant investment of time and resources in order to get access to industry professionals. So multi-published authors, Christie Award winners, Carol Award winners, best-selling authors, professional editors who are booked out 18 months in advance on edits for published authors, and then literary agents, acquisition editors, people who are doing this in the real world. And that's the apprenticeship model. It's the conservatory model. If you go to a conservatory of music or a conservatory for film, you're not just sitting in a classroom, you're doing the hands-on work with professionals as opposed to just professors. And so that's the same model we're trying to use. It's, it's a three-year program. It is an intense and rigorous program. And we're focused not just on writing craft, but on entrepreneurship. So we have students starting businesses to practice their business skills in preparation for someday publishing their books and being able to sell those books. We have students who have made $20,000 in their first year at $83 an hour with a pop-up business that they started with our help. You know, this is a 20-year-old girl who is being able to build a business that allows her to support herself at a very high hourly rate leaving plenty of time for writing. So she has a long financial runway. And we tell our students the name of the game is to stay in the game until you win the game in publishing. 
And so to be able to have a source of financial provision that you own, it's a business that you've started and run, but is also a highly efficient source of income. So it is not taking over all your time and your mental energy. That's a strategy for a young person to be able to stay in the game long enough to win the game. So we're 50-50 writing craft, feedback from authors, and entrepreneurship, starting businesses, earning real money with coaching from successful entrepreneurs. I love that model because it does take time to get the money to come in. I mean, you're the exception. Your first book was this runaway hit, but that really is rare. Most people, especially in fiction, it takes time to build it up. And you had an advantage in that you're writing nonfiction. You have a famous last name. People know who your family is. (laughs) So you had a large platform that you inherited. And for somebody who's starting from scratch in fiction, you're only making part-time income at best. At first, you're not making anything, right? Because you're an unpublished. You're working away in your first manuscript or your fifth manuscript. And then the money starts to get better and starts to get better. But then once it gets good, it gets really good. And you need the time to get there. And so I love that perspective of persistence because one of the things I've noticed is that a lot of people give up when they realize how hard it is to get published. They think that they just write a book, they get an agent. They get published and everything is good and they don't realize just what's involved in the journey. (laughs) And they don't realize just how good they have to be, right? You have to be the best at the conference if you want to succeed in publishing, right? Because only the top percentage of authors make most of the money. Yeah. And I think that's where I challenge young writers to and their parents to, to realize this is a viable career if you treat it like any other career. If your daughter's a senior in high school, she says she wants to be a lawyer, you wouldn't ask her a, a year later, hey, why aren't you making money yet as a lawyer? <laughs> um, <laughs> it's like, because I'm a freshman in college and then I still have to go to law school and then pass the bar. Like there's all these steps. There's all this time that has to take seven years, at least $180,000 on average invested. And then you make money as a lawyer. It's the same with being an author. You've got to put in the time. This is hard work. You don't just dabble on the side and hope to be good enough to be a professional. Just like you don't play pickup basketball in the summers when you're not in school and hope to be a professional basketball player. And so for those young people who are listening and parents and anyone who's advising young people about college, I would just encourage them to think of it this way. If you spend more time and effort on your backup plan, going to school, having a degree in something, or just having a degree period so you have a fallback option. If you spend more time on your backup plan than you do on working towards your dream, you will succeed at your backup plan and you will fail at your dream. And that's what happens to most people. Well said. One final thought I want to leave uh, all of you with, and that is debt. We've been skirting around the edges of debt, and I want to share some stories with you. I went to school 10, 15 years ago, and some of the people that I went to school with are still trapped in the debt that they got in school. And it has really negatively affected their lives ever since. And back to what you're talking about, about how wealthy people, most of them go to school and they do really well. Poor people don't, but some of them do. And they go through school accumulating a lot of debt under this concept that their earnings are going to increase enough to help them pay off their debt. And that doesn't end up happening. For a lot of people going to school now, they never escape that debt. And it's debt that can't be absolved in bankruptcy. And so what it does, is it creates a form of debt peonage, which was 
what created the serfs thousand years ago was debt that couldn't be escaped. And you lose your freedom. You lose your ability to operate autonomously when you get saddled with massive amounts of debt. And so, so many of you listening, you're not wondering about college for yourself. You're wondering about college for your children or for your grandchildren. If you're pressuring your children to go to school while not providing for them to go to school, you're pushing your children into a situation where they may accumulate debt to which they will never escape, which is really unfortunate. And on the flip side, let's say you do have money. Let's say you have $50,000 set aside and you could buy an education with that. But if you put that same $50,000 in a, I don't know, S&P 500 ETF in the next 40 years, that 50000 will grow to be a million dollars, right? Just a basic mutual fund, basic ETF. And so this, the university degree has to be better than just investing that money in a good, safe, vanilla investment. And S&P 500 ETF is like the most vanilla investment you can get. But it has an annualized rate of return of 8%. In 40 years, that 8% turns it into quite a bit of money. <laughs> so you need to know what that best alternative is. And pushing young people to get into massive debt, I think, does not do them a service. And we need to start sounding the warning sirens because it used to be you could go to school and you could pay for it with a part-time job. And it's not that way. It's too expensive. You can't save to pay for school. It's not the 1940s, like when my grandmother went, a semester is not $25. My encouragement is that writing as a career is possible. It's absolutely possible if you pursue it in a smart way. It's absolutely possible to pursue your writing dreams while still being a responsible adult who can actually pay their bills. And the way you do that is by putting in the hard work, putting the time, getting the training, and gaining the business skills along with the writing skills. That's the combination that I've seen work for myself, for others that I've coached, and is really what's missing, I believe, in college writing programs, even going up into a master's in creative writing or beyond. And so my encouragement is this is possible. There are paths forward. Find people who are trying to equip you with those skills. And ultimately, just believe in your young person that they can do this if they put their mind to it, if they have your support, and if they work hard. And if you're willing to invest in it the way you would invest in any other career that they could pursue. So believe in them, support them. It is possible. College is not a good option for writers, but that doesn't mean that this dream has to die. Well said. Brett Harris, thank you so much for joining us today on the Novel Marketing Podcast. I'll have links to the author conservatory, which you can find at theyoungwriter.com. We also have the Young Writers Workshop. If you have a young person in your life, these are all geared at, I would say, high school, college age primarily. Is, is that a good estimate? Yeah, teens and 20s. Mm-hmm. So if you know a young person or if you are a young person, I encourage you to check out those links and just make an informed decision knowing what your next best alternative is. And if you're older, you should check out my course, The Five-Year Plan to Become a Best-Selling Author. 
I crafted this plan with best-selling and award-winning author James L. Rubart, who's now in the Hall of Fame. It's a step-by-step guide through the first five years of your writing career. Learn each quarter what to do to succeed and what mistakes to avoid that can hijack your success. A lot of what slows down authors in developing their careers is working on the right things at the wrong time. So we help you know what to focus on to make this journey a lot less overwhelming and a lot more effective. And you can learn more about the five-year plan at authormedia.com courses. Our featured patron today is Jonathan Schruger, author of Shades of Black in Darkness Cast. A young swordsman desperate to save his people turns to the only instructor he can find, the bitter champion of the everlasting dark. They know light best who first know the dark. Jonathan, thank you so much for being a patron of this podcast, helping keep this show on the air. I couldn't do it without you and the other patrons who support the Novel Marketing Podcast. And if you would like to become a patron, we have information at authormedia.com slash patron. The Novel Marketing Podcast is a production of Author Media. Our producer is Lori Christine, audio engineering by William Umstadt, blogification by Shauna Lettler. And to read that blog version, go to authormedia.com slash 346. And I am Thomas Umstadt Jr. saying thank you for listening and live long and prosper.